Hey there, I'm Joe Town, and this is The Better Podcast. My guest this week is Anthony Sparks. Anthony is from the south side of Chicago. He's an actor, a writer, and a producer. As an actor, Anthony has been on the stage at Williamstown Theater Festival, at the Public Theater, and at the Old Globe. He spent five years as a cast member of the smash hit show Stomp as the comedic lead. While at Stomp, he wrote backstage. He wrote a solo show, which got him some attention, not only as an actor, but also as a writer. A few years later, he came out to Los Angeles to pursue a career writing television. He has since written on shows like Undercovers for J.J. Abrams and on The Blacklist, both for NBC. For the last six seasons, he has been on the writing staff for Queen Sugar, working with Ava DuVernay, first as a writer-producer, and for the last several years as the showrunner of this critically acclaimed show on OWN. He is now creating shows under his overall deal with Blumhouse Television. He is a book author, a show creator. He also has his PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity. Let's jump right into the conversation with Dr. Anthony Sparks, which is about the celebration of what is possible. In this episode, you'll probably notice a few things. First, a New Yorker and a Chicagoan get into a flow. Swearing ensues, so be mindful that this episode has that. Also, there are some background noises you may notice. Anthony was kind enough to take some time out of his busy workday, and some people were trying to reach him during our conversation. Lastly, and this is a bit embarrassing, but I don't exactly sound like me during this episode. I'm kind of louder than normal, and it's because I was having some problems with my headphones and recording device, and I've had some trouble hearing for a bulk of this conversation. So if I sound strange, that's why. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for being here. Here's where I'd love to start. Imagine a whole bunch of people following you around, like you're a country. Mm -hmm. If your life had a newspaper, what would its current headline be? Rising. Beautiful. (laughs) Okay, so I double click on this article. What is it telling me? Is telling you or the reader about a young man or youngish <laughs> who really feels that he is in a blessed place where many of the things um, that he has endeavored to do and be in his life perhaps more importantly, more important B rather than do, is close to firing on all cylinders. That's the feeling that I have with great gratitude and uh, being able to be able to say that. Yeah, in many ways, I feel like even though I'm in different stages in my life, whether you're talking about professionally, whether you're talking about personally, whether you're talking about as a husband, as a father, Uh, as an educator, as an artist, as someone deeply engaged in the world uh, from uh, perhaps, I guess you might, as an activist, that I am in some ways feeling like I'm just getting started, even though I acknowledge that I have been fortunate and blessed to have a full 
range of activities or career or whatever you want to call it behind me at this point. But I feel like, God willing, I'm just getting started. What a beautiful newspaper. I want to subscribe to this newspaper. (laughs) And thank you for sharing the depths of that. When people ask you about where you grew up, you're proudly from the south side of Chicago. Very proud. Yes. Could you paint me a snapshot of growing up there? Like if if you could whisk me to one place, like the ghost of Christmas past, where would you take me and what would I see? Okay, well, I grew up on the far south side of Chicago. And what would you see? You would see a very small brick and aluminum siding house, a brick house that was half, a house that was literally half brick and half aluminum siding. You would see a neighborhood that was actually only two blocks long that was sort of situated by a, a, a freeway um, and uh, train tracks. You would see a house that's literally on the other side of the train tracks. I literally, it took me a long time to actually realize, like, wait a minute, I actually grew up on the other side of the train, like literally in my back, right outside my backyard is a train that my mom used to scream at me for playing on the train tracks when I was four or five years old. So you would see a humble neighborhood of working people uh, who had um, a certain amount of pride and what they had while being very aware of what they didn't have. But you would see a lot of love. Um, You would see a lot of sort of idyllic playing baseball or rather softball, excuse me, in the uh, intersection of the two streets that made up my sort of immediate neighborhood. You would see all sorts of characters all up and down the street, a block full of kids back when you could still be like, get up in the morning and go out of your house. This is in seventies and eighties and just play all day. You would see all of those good things. You see a lot of love and you would see a lot of community in the real sense of the word. You would also see dysfunction as well. You would see the neighborhood start to turn in such a way that did not feel safe at times. You would see the, the, the joy of young black children who had a stable home, you would start to, as they grew up, you would start to see the institutions in our world start to impact those kids and their parents in a way where it could not be hidden or denied. And you would see the realization in someone like me who loved where I grew up, you would see by the time I'm about 10 years old, me starting to realize I probably can't stay here and I'm being raised not to stay here. Here meaning both a physical place as well as being um, a mental and spiritual place too. And that I was being raised to expand the ground upon which I began and the ground upon which I would live and do live. And that, unfortunately, that would mean leaving. Yeah, I hear a lot in there. I know, believe you were the first person in your family to be born in Chicago and not in Mississippi. That's true. 
And I love that you started with the beauty and the connection and the love. And I'm picturing little you at four or five on the train tracks. And two things stand out to me. The innocence and curiosity of wanting to play Uh on these tracks. But also then I start to wonder who put the tracks there? Who put (laughs) the freeway there? The history of the transportation system in America has long been a tool for discrimination. It's been reinforced daily from the creation of highways, roads, bridges, and other public transport. We have made it harder for Black people and other people of color to access and take advantage of opportunities. Highways were being built just as courts around the country were striking down traditional tools of racial segregation. So, for example, courts were striking down the use of racial zoning to keep black people in certain communities and white people in other communities. And so the highway development popped up at a time when the idea, the possibility of integration in housing was on the horizon. American cities that were subdivided by railroads in the 19th century into physically discrete neighborhoods became much more segregated decades later. Where railroads were placed created communities which literally existed on the other side of the tracks. We see the impact of this on cities from Pittsburgh to Tampa to Kansas City, Missouri. Here's something I didn't know about the city I live in, Los Angeles. In 1910, some 36% of LA's African Americans were homeowners, compared with 2.4% in New York City, tops in the nation. We had a comprehensive transit system, Redcar, which offered easy, unsegregated access to areas of economic opportunity and were fundamental to this success. Integrated, racially diverse neighborhoods like Watts and Boyle Heights emerged and thrived along these transit corridors. But then the population surged from 320,000 in 1910 to more than 1.2 million in 1930. This included tens of thousands of African Americans from the Deep South. Now, the freeway system in Los Angeles was designed to cut through the heart of these communities. President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal created a grading system to assess the desirability of residential communities. There was newer, most desired, which was green, older, still desirable, which was blue, in decline, which was yellow, and quote-unquote hazardous, which was red. Now, a key factor that influenced these grades was race. A racially homogenous population was considered desirable, but only so long as that race was white and non-immigrant. Communities with African-American, Asian, Native American, and Latino residents typically received at best a C grade, and most commonly, a D grade. The presence of Jews could also reduce a community's grade. White immigrant populations such as Slavs, Greeks, Italians would negatively impact a community's grade if those populations made little effort to distance from neighbors who were people of color. So suddenly, states in the nation are flush with millions and millions of dollars to build freeways. And they're looking at these redlining maps and going, hmm, where should we build freeways? What areas are in need of rehabilitation? When looking at redlining maps, they can easily identify a community 
like Boyle Heights, which was redlined and say, okay, here's a quote unquote slum that needs to be cleared. Let's put a highway here. Context. Sugar Hill became an icon of black Hollywood, acting as the home to stars like Hattie McDaniel, Louise Beavers, Joe Lewis, Ray Charles. White residents got upset and sued. So black residents began organizing. They won. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it paved its way for the Fair Housing Act 20 years later. However, in the early 1960s, the Santa Monica Freeway was constructed through the middle of Sugar Hill. Also in the 1960s, Beverly Hills residents protested the construction of what was known as the Beverly Hills Freeway. They used much of the same arguments as Sugar Hill residents, that their homes were historic, that their community was valuable. Erica Vila, professor at UCLA, said of this, Beverly Hills won, Sugar Hill lost. And that gives you a very clear indication of who was able to fight freeways and who was not. This is why LA's freeways are symbolic sites of protest. The freeway system displaced generations of people of color. What was the first big dream that you remember having? You said that you were being prepared. This foundation was preparing you. What was the first big dream that you had? I think the very first big dream I had was, <laughs> you will laugh because this is so not who I am now, was to be a scientist. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> I can see that. Tell me more. What area of science were you fascinated by? All of it? or? Well, the funny thing is I had never had a real science class when I was talking about, I think I might want to be a scientist. I now understand that and it makes sense given who I am in the past I pursued that what I was saying was, I wanted to discover things and build things. Like, I think that, and the word I came up with was, and the thing, the how that translated when I was eight years old, was scientist. I had a chemistry set. I just loved mixing and playing with things, you know, like many kids do. And so that's what it meant. Then I took my first real science class when I started at this very rigorous school. And I was like, I'm not doing that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and moreover, I think what it was about, it was about curiosity. I want to know. I literally just gave a lecture to my kids this morning. I'm sure they just love hearing this this morning. And I said that I, I cannot abide being around people who are not curious. Like it makes my skin itch. Yes. <laughs> like to be, around people who are not curious about some, not necessarily the same things I'm interested in, but about some aspect of the world in which they live or the world that they wish they lived in. And so I think what I was expressing was not so much a career, which definitely turned out not to be my gift in terms of being a scientist, but curiosity, wondering, um, how do you mix things up? How do you build things? How do you make an impact ultimately, which is what I think scientists do, right? How do you make an impact on the world? So in some ways, it's just the word scientist or the, you know, with me having very limited exposure, not ever having met a scientist at that point, that was how it came out. So that was, was, was that. I love it because one of the things that I observe about you is that systematically you have often embodied someone who wanted to figure out how things work 
towards that big dream that you described at the beginning in a newspaper article. And I know that you went to that fancy school <laughs> and you won several awards, national awards in high school, two golds for speech, I believe, one silver for acting. Oh my God, you went into the archives. <laughs> you were sought after, right? Several programs wanted you and you chose USC in Southern California. And I'm curious, what did you come in hoping to learn or experience and what surprised you that you came out knowing? Me choosing to go from Southside Chicago to USC, particularly at that time in the early 90s, I think it was, you know, I think a lot of people from, you know, USC ends up recruiting and enrolling a lot of people now from Chicago. I feel like it was a little less so then. People thought I was definitely headed either to like Northwestern or NYU or Carnegie Mellon. Those were places that I was looking at. And I had had some experience with those places, having spent done, having been fortunate and blessed to do some summer programs. At, you were a cherub, right, at Northwestern? I was a cherub at Northwestern, and then I was in Carnegie Mellon's pre-college program the summer before my senior year mm -hmm. uh, for their, the you know, their very, you know, prestigious theater program, and had the great um, fortune of being accepted into that Carnegie Mellon program right after, like, as I started my senior year of high school. So it was like a really tremendous confidence booster for me as a uh, theater person, as a as an actor at that time, to go through my senior year of high school already with, like, you know, arguably the top program admittance already in my back pocket. So then why USC? I had never even been to California. <laughs> and that was part of it. My mother had drilled into me that school should be an adventure. College should be an adventure. She had drilled into me. Those were not her words, but she was like, go away. You know, you have to like go away. Don't, don't stay. And so ultimately those other places began to feel almost like too easy to make that choice for me at that time. I don't know that they would have been. I'm just, this is 17 year old Anthony, you know, logic, but I felt a calling to like this adventure that somehow being in Los Angeles, going to USC, something that I literally could not even really imagine because I had never been west of the Mississippi <laughs> when I decided to do this. And we didn't have money for me to come out here to look at it or anything like that. I had one friend who was also a cherub at Northwestern who was at USC in the theater school and School of Dramatic Arts now. And I literally called him up on a Sunday. I think he was like probably half drunk or something. But I called him up and I was I was like, hey, it's they called me Sparky then. I was like, hey, it's Sparky. I was like, hey, tell me the pros and cons, man, because I'm really thinking about doing this. And he ran it down for me. And I decided that I was going to go on this wild adventure. So I so it was not only obviously the the prestige of the drama program uh, which has maintained if perhaps in, even increased since we were there but it was also i'm gonna go on a ride if i do this what surprised me was that when you decide to become a creative person or pursue your creativity and artist is that there is no one right way to do it and i think for me i had built up in my head that you're going to come here, you're going to do four years straight, you're going to do, you know, 
you know, this the first year, that the second year, and then at the end of it, you are this like sort of fully formed sort of artist. It sounds ridiculous to say that now because we're older and we know better, but that's very comforting to a 17, 18 year old kid who could go do other things. I had academically, I could have done other things, but my heart was beating in this direction and the door was open, but it was also a huge risk. So, you know, I had a lot of pressure from people. Don't you want to be a lawyer? Don't you want to, uh, you know, be a, a certain type of businessman? You could do anything. And, da, 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 da. and then I was like, no, I, I want to act. I want to, I want to live. I want to do the arts. You know, like literally there were people in Chicago that were like, this boy could do anything. And he is like talking about Shakespeare. Are you, you know, there was a certain aspect of that, like from people in my church community and stuff like that, that were like, are you kidding me? You know, looking, cause they're looking through the lens of, of you're a capable black boy from a place where they say capable black boys don't come from and, and please go out there and wave the flag and go make some money and, and build a business and, and, da, 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 and all of that. And I'm like, look at this tap dance, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, but ultimately I think all of that also weighed on me too, in a way that was positive And that has impacted the way that my career and life has gone because I have always felt a, calling to pour whatever it is that I've done into um, a larger purpose. And that is something that didn't, wasn't like, oh, I crystallized that thought and I had that thought at 18. In some ways I felt when I was in my 20s as an artist in New York and stuff like that, a little ahead of my time at, at the time. And so what's happening now that I'm in my 40s is that I feel like the things that I've been talking about and been interested in that was not that popular to talk about when I was 25. Now I don't have to make an excuse for why I want to talk about make the world a better place through your art or being, you know, um, engaged in the world in ways that some people would call political or whatever, or putting your politics into your art or vice versa. It's almost expected now that's what the currency of relevancy is now. But for a long time, you could pay um, a very high price for that. And I do believe that I've had experiences where I have paid for that in the past. But the good news is, is that I'm still here. So back at USC, the first play I ever saw you do was a play called The Dutchman. That's the first play you saw me do? Yes, sir. And I'm curious, how did you come to choose that play? And I'm wondering, what was it and you trying to say? It's so funny. You know, that was one of the, uh, and I don't know if you recall this or not. That's right. You and I, we met and we became Thickest Thieves, but it was it, like very suddenly. Like, suddenly. I remember that I remember the day you approached me and said hello to me. Um, I, think it was, I think we were at a bookstore. Wow. That was a real turning point. I read the play as a freshman year in Herb Shore, God rest his soul, his critical studies class. I read it my first semester of college. I read at the end of my first semester of college, I read Dutchman. And I was like, holy shit, I'd never read anything like that before. So I'm 18. I understood enough about the play to know that I've been hugely impacted by reading it. And I didn't understand it completely, but I understood 
the emotions behind it. It just spoke to some deeper part of me that at that point had not been expressed creatively. There was an anger, a rage there. There was a hopefulness in the beginning of it that completely is shattered. And I just was like, and it was the role of a young black male who, you know, I fit all the sort of outward manifestations of the role, you know, you know, sort of this educated guy, smart guy trying to, and I was set on fire. And I decided at the end of my first semester, freshman year, I'm doing this play before I graduate. I'm doing this play. And so my junior year, uh, what they called experimentals at the time, I had been fortunate that I'd been cast a lot in my first two years at USC, but I was always doing bigger shows on the Bing stage. And so I became, for better or for worse, kind of a big actor, uh, you know, a big sort of Broadway size actor who was doing classical material and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And I wanted to do something a little smaller and I wanted to do something that was personal and was scary. And that play is, was scary for me to go there. I think the play beat me, frankly, at that time. I, di- I did not feel that I conquered that play. It was a very painful experience putting it up. Um, the actress and I um, that I did it with, which was Lee Allen Baker, it was wonderful. It was asking us to tap into something that I think I was prepared for. I could, can't say whether she was prepared for it or not, but it was a tough, tough play. We ended up screaming at each other and we had a falling out and she quit and then I quit. And then, you know, and I remember going to John Blankenship and I said, we just had the worst rehearsal ever. We're not doing the play. He was like, Oh no, the play opens tomorrow night. at eight o'clock." <laughs> but no, you don't understand. You don't understand. She said this, I said this, blah, blah, blah. Da, da, da. And it, you know, just, you know, drama school drama. He's like, Oh no, the, the show opens at eight o'clock tomorrow night. He's like, he's like, and then he was like, bye-bye, honey. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going to um, uh, acting teacher at USC t- at the time, Honest Tremezi, who I loved and adored. I told her what, you know, that we were having a tough time and we weren't getting along and doing the play. And she said, Tony, 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 Tony. Of course you had a blowout doing the play. She said, that play is not about anger, Tony. That play is about something deeper. I was like, well, what is it about? She said, it's about hate. Anger and hate are two different things. And you all are trying to push past the anger and get to a place where you're expressing the possibility of hate. That's tough. So, yeah, it was going to be tough, you know, and we did it. John Edwin Blankenship earned a bachelor's degree in design and directing from what is now Carnegie Mellon University in 1941, followed by a master's in fine arts in design and directing from Yale in 1943. He spent the next three years designing scenery, costumes, and lighting both on and off Broadway, first as assistant to designer Harry Horner, and then on his own. He began teaching and spent eight years on the faculty of Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York. In 1955, he was offered a teaching position at USC, which lasted for over 50 years. John Blankenship also designed at the Tanglewood Music Festival in Massachusetts, the Guild Opera Company in Hollywood, and the La Jolla Playhouse. He was author Ray Bradbury's designer of choice for productions of his plays. John was a mentor to a lot of people, including Anthony and me. 
actors like John Ritter, Eric Stoltz, and Danny Strong all went to Edinburgh with John. It was like this rite of passage. By the time I met him, most people just referred to him as the old man. He is believed to have brought the first university group to perform on the fringe of the Edinburgh International Festival. Between 1966 and 2005, the company mounted 23 seasons on the fringe. He challenged actors. He pushed them beyond what they thought was possible for them. He had a crude sense of humor and an infectious laugh. John was not for everyone. But his belief in an actor often helped them become better artists. I spent four seasons at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with John. I spent a summer with him in Paris. He produced my first play I ever wrote and encouraged me to write my own material. I will be forever grateful to John, who passed away 12 years ago in 2009. You sounded like you liked the production, Jeff. <laughs> I was so moved and challenged by it. It was the first of many things I saw you do. I got the great privilege of seeing you on the Bing stage and Pericles and multiple other shows. And, you know, I want to brag on you for a minute. You won several awards at USC, uh, the LeVar Burton Award, the Jack Nicholson Award, and the Anna Bing Arnold Doctoral Fellowship. So clearly, your work as an artist was impactful. And then you move across country. Yeah. You get your first job out of college is at Williamstown. Peter Hunt casts you. Then you're at the public theater and you're cast in a gender reverse King Lear. You're playing Cordelia. Viola Davis is playing Edgar. What stands out to you the most from that experience? Don't forget Billy Porter is playing Goneril. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what a moment. So so I always tell people the role in the TV space that launched Billy Porter, where we all know his name, which is Pose. I'm like, Billy was playing that part back in 1995. <laughs> and I was right there with him, you know, in this gender revised version of King Lear. And he was playing Goneril and Viola Davis was playing Edgar. And of course, we were, he was Billy Porter, a working actor on Broadway and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Viola Davis was not that long out of Juilliard, you know, gathering a bud. But we were just, you know, and then I literally was literally off the bus and, you know, found myself getting cast uh, in New York doing this. So this was Billy Porter before he was Billy Porter and Viola Davis before she was Viola Davis, right? And so I always say to people, you never know who's next to you when you're working with people, when you're starting out and stuff like that. So, you know, you know, cherish those experiences and, uh, and, 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 you know, you just never know who, who people are. Then you go on to be cast in Stump at 22. Yeah. You do the show for five years. There's a lot I could ask you about. You've talked quite a bit about it, but what I'm curious about today is, what did that production teach you about what it takes to sustain eight shows a week and beyond? A lot. <laughs> it taught me a lot about stamina that I think I still sort of carry with me today. Um, sometimes, mostly in healthy ways, but sometimes I will admit occasionally slipped into, um, because I have such stamina, have had such stamina. Um, I have also 
sometimes allow that to be used either used against me in unhealthy ways. Okay. Cause I can take like, you know, I'm a guy who came through it, you know, doing eight shows of a grueling show a week. I was young. I always tell people take advantage of your youth. You know, I was young, but even that I did pay a price. I wasn't always using my body properly at that time. And as you know, ended up in a couple of knee surgeries, but still recovered and still was able to do that show. I have some friends who did that show for like 15 years plus. I don't know how they did it. God bless them. They are the real heroes of Doc About Stamina. But I did it hardcore as hard as I could for five years. And I loved it. So it taught me about self-care eventually the hard way because I didn't do it as well as I could have at the beginning. I didn't know to. You know, I became a fan of body work and massage therapy. I became a fan at that time of Pilates and things like that um, in terms of. But also what it taught me was you can dig deeper and make something fresh longer than you think you can. And I first I sometimes call stop my first writing job. Because I played sort of the court gesture of the show and the directors uh, and creators of the show. trusted me and literally allowed me to change my performance pretty much every night within the framework of the show, of course. Um, But I did a lot of improvisation. And so by the time I left Stomp, which was to transition into being a TV writer, I had been writing on stage every night, five years. And sometimes I fell flat on my face. Sometimes I blew the roof off of of, of the audience, you know, and usually it was somewhere in between. You know, but, you know, I would get immediate feedback of did it land? Was it funny? You know, was it impactful? You know, and so that turned out to be helpful to me, like, say, on a show like Queen Sugar, which I've run for the last few years, um, because I can dig deep looking for story, like deeper than probably some other people would be inclined to do so. And um, I'm, I'm proud of that skill. And I would say that I began to develop that actually doing eight shows a week, seven or eight shows a week on Stomp. Stomp is a percussion group originating in Brighton, United Kingdom in 1991. It was created by Steve McNicholas and Luke Cresswell. Stomp uses the body and ordinary everyday objects to create a physical theater performance using rhythms, acrobatics, and pantomime. Cresswell and McNicholas first worked together in 1981 as members of the street band Pookie Snackenberger, which they performed at the Edinburgh Festival throughout the early 1980s. In the summer of 1991, the original Stomp show previewed at London's Bloomsbury Theatre and premiered at the Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh, where it became The Guardian's Critics' Choice and won the Daily Express's Best of the Fringe Award. In January 1994, it received an Olivier nomination for the Best Entertainment Award and won the Best Choreography Award in a West End show in London. Stomp began its run at the Orpheum Theatre in New York City in February 1994, winning an Obie Award and a Drama Desk Award for Most Unique Theatre Experience. Stomp brought down the house at the Academy Awards, produced by Quincy Jones. Stomp later performed at the Acropolis in Athens, and later on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at President Bill Clinton's televised Millennium Celebration. Stomp Out Loud, a 45-minute television special, was produced for HBO 
and received four Emmy Award nominations. A collaboration between Stomp and Jim Henson's Muppets for Sesame Street called Let's Make Music was made as well. In honor of its 10th anniversary at the Orpheum Theater, 2nd Avenue at 8th Street was officially renamed Stomp Avenue. Entertainment Weekly included Stomp in the list of the 50 best plays in musicals from 1983 to 2008. And in 2012, Stomp performed as part of the closing ceremony at the London Olympics. I'm hearing so much in there. I'm hearing about self-care and the things we need to do to get our body ready. But the idea of doing 500 to 1,000 shows yeah. feels like the curiosity you were talking about of what else is there was a practice and it came about because of this trust in this environment. And I was fortunate enough to see you in that show. I want to say that was the first show that I'd ever seen that many times. Yeah, yeah. Because I'd been in a lot of plays, but not in the audience. I'd been fortunate to be to a Broadway show on a few occasions, but here I was watching you play and making discoveries. And I've seen you bring the house down and experiment. And I'm curious, because I know a lot was happening at that time, right? I mean, you met your now wife while you were in New York. Yeah, You were writing backstage. You wrote your first solo play, Ghetto Punch, which I got to see. And then you started to think about film and TV as an actor. And I wonder, in what ways were you seen for who you are and what you have to offer? And in what ways were you not being seen? At that time, in the mid and late 90s, I was not being seen at all for who I am and who I was. Not even a little bit. And that was a problem and that was a challenge and it was a, at times, painful one. I've said before, and I'll always say this uh, because it's true, but I was being told that I did not exist as a type, as a person, as a young black male in the TV and film space. A little more, but still not even that much in the theater space, in traditional theater space. But, you know, because that is an art form that is often about stretching and, you know, you know, I, I had enough of a skill set as an actor, particularly my facility with language and classics and stuff like that, where I could be cast and work. But in TV and film, it was either, you know, knock somebody over the head on law and order at that time, or there wasn't much for you, except for maybe an independent film that came through every now and again. There just wasn't, the opportunity just wasn't there. And it was really hard for me to to admit that because at first it just felt like personal failure. And then it was like, I'm not the only person having this conversation though. Like other people are, and these are talented people, many people who have now found, you know, spots for themselves um, or did for a while anyway in uh, TV and film, but they're just, it wasn't there. And I was having a hard time at age 26, 27. I'm only 26, 27, which is like prime time. Like it's ready for prime time when you're 26, 27, 28. Like, okay, we're getting ready. Like, and opportunity was decreasing. And I was like, 
how am I going to be washed up at 28? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I was watching my wife, who's a beautiful, dark-skinned actor. I was watching her. She had been fortunate to, you know, she went to NYU in the grad acting program. She came out of there. She was immediately, within a year, within six months, really, she was on Broadway. You know, then she's on Broadway again. And even she, there was this period where even she, we were both like, what is happening? Like, we're not even getting regional theater. Like, what is happening here? That was sort of a push for me to reconnect with some other things that I've been interested in and to remember that I had always been a person that was in sort of trying to engage on a larger level. So, and that began to push me towards writing. I didn't want to wait until the bottom fell out of my acting career until, and then I was like, oh, and then I'll write. I was like, look, I'm making a living doing this. I'm still doing eight shows a week. This other space is not opening up the way that I want it to. I don't think me going back to school to get an MFA is the answer. I don't think, you know, I was like, no, this is not about, I, yes, we can always be better. I was like, this ain't about me being better. This is about something larger. There's something macro going on here. And the, my solution to dealing with that was I got to be a part of the creative conversation sooner. I got to build some stuff. I got to create some stuff. I got to write um, because they're telling me I don't exist and I'm sitting right here. They're telling me they don't believe that this comes out of the south side of Chicago. I'm like, but I do. And so do other people I know, lots of other people I know. So I found myself having this um, crisis where I would be in an audition room with a, auditioning, generally speaking, for a panel full of white people, trying to convince them that I was their version of black. And so I went, wait a minute, we're not even determining what blackness is. There's a panel of white people that are doing that every day in rooms all across the country, primarily in Los Angeles and New York, who are using their limited exposure generally to tell me what blackness is. And I'm the one living it and showing up in my authentic self. And you're saying that that doesn't exist. It was a mind fuck on a level that I literally believe drives people crazy, has driven people crazy and still does. And I was like, I'm not going out like that. <laughs> I am not going out like that, you know? So what can I do and make a living doing it? And the answer became write and produce. You wanted to create space for yourself in the TV and film universe, in the metaverse. But And when you say my, yourself, my, I, and those like me, so it wasn't the idea of when I fully embraced writing, it was not so I could write myself a role. It was larger than that. It was why some people who knew me and knew how driven I was as an actor at first got a little bit of like whiplash, like, wait, you're doing what now? And to me, it was not whiplash. To me, it was a part of a larger discussion that they may not have been aware that I was trying to have, which was about images, the quantity and quality of images, not just positive versus negative or bad versus good images, particularly of black people. Instead of positive or negative, I would say full, full images and stories of who we have been, who we are and who we could be. And so to me, the pivot to writing 
was as natural because it aligned with a purpose that I was going after as anything. So I remember when I got my first TV job, which was on the show of, of, of the district, which was us, you know, there was an actor, who, a wonderful actor named Sean Patrick Thomas, who's still in the business, of course. And he was basically playing one of the few roles that was out there that I could have been cast in. And somebody said to me in my first year on that show, isn't it hard for you to be writing on a show for a role that you could play and play well? And I was like, no. I said, because, you know, the issue at that time, I think is less so now, was, was, was actors were not thinking larger than just acting in terms of what the next role is. You know, you're encouraged as an actor to think at that time very narrow about you and how good you can be and did you get the part and did you, 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 and there's a larger picture out there. And I wanted to be a part of that larger picture conversation and writing and producing and television became the answer to that for me, um, as well as the answer to the practicality of making a living, you know, as well. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not one of these Pollyannas who don't think that you don't have to make decisions sometimes based on just how you survive. I grew up way too um, working class or poor to ever kind of embrace that kind of privilege. Because I did take some blowback at the time in New York among sort of the downtown artist circles. I was very open about the fact that I want, that I had gotten interested in television. And you should have seen, I shall not name names because they are still around. You should have seen some of the looking down your nose backstage at the public or looking down your nose, you know, at the downtown when they would hear that, like, isn't this guy trying to do TV? Like, he's like he's not legit. He's not pure. Like, I was getting those, those sort of vibes and stuff from people. People who, by the way, now are trying to work in television 20 uh-huh. years, 25 years later. So I do, I do take a little bit. I do take a little bit of, like, a little bit. It's, it's, there's a little shade in there, I'll admit. But, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, so, you know. Now uh, you... Now yeah, you yeah. get it. Now you get it. Yeah. You know? But yeah. I'm, I'm really hearing that the pain of not being able to be the fullest artist you could be, the fullest human, the fullest creator, sparked the desire to create your way through and out once again, there's this moment where a pivot happens, right? You leave the successful show, you get injured, you leave the show, you travel across the country, track down a relative you didn't know you had and rent a couch for four months while you take a big swing. Yep. So what were you seeking? I was seeking a way in at that point and I was seeking a way up and I was seeking, it was, it was time for my next act. I got into the Warner brothers writers workshop. I got into another program as well. I had had enough things happen positively for me to, for me to know that this was perhaps a legitimate way forward. I was seeking two things. I was seeking work just on a practical bit level. But I was also seeking to, I was starting around that time to also ask my que- the question, what is all this for? I had worked so much while at the same time, like every other performer, getting a lot of no's that 
as an artist and as a Black man, I was starting to ask myself, am I going to spend the rest of my life having other people have absolute say over what my life looks like? I'm having a problem. As I was exp- like, as I was trying to articulate and define what adulthood meant to me, what manhood meant to me, what black manhood meant to me, I was literally having like this existential sort of like I wouldn't say crisis, but conversation where I was like, "This business is trying to tell me what black people is, and my job right now is to somehow fulfill that, is to become somebody else's idea of what it is to be me." And I'm going to beg for that for the rest of my life. I don't think so. (laughs) We got to do something else. We got to expand. I was also beginning to ask serious questions about what role does the image making industry, which is what TV and film is, play in larger society? And obviously, these questions have become much more urgent in the last few years. But I have been trying to engage with that question and figure out a way through it and make it work for me and my creativity almost since the beginning, you know, of my career. I'm grateful that I don't have to explain that anymore because that was something I had to explain to people, you know, for years, but I I don't anymore. People get it now. That is what eventually led to the PhD, the pursuit of the PhD. I was like, I need a space to think through these issues, to think through this intellectual and creative project that we call show business or entertainment, which is really actually the business of creating the lens through which we live our lives in our society. But as the turn of the century happened, it started, the answer became clear to me, like, I think I should carve out some space and time to go do this PhD thing. It was different from what I thought it was going to be, but ultimately ended up being very, very impactful to me. And as a black person also, like there's like, you'll you'll hear two things with me. Like I talk about purpose and stuff like that. I also talk about like the practical side of things. That's the poor South side kid in me who can't like be like, Oh, let's just go and run through the fields and just think about, you know, and come to it. It was like, yeah, I can do that, but I also got to pay some bills. And so, and I don't have, you know, a mommy or daddy who can do it for me. It became sort of this practical thing. So I'm always interested as a black person, as a black artist, and it's like, and I'm going to pick up an extra credential too. (laughs) And we'll see what what that leads to. So at the time I was literally walking around, I didn't know there was a thing, such a thing as an artist scholar or a scholar artist at that time. That's ultimately, if you had to put a label now on what it is I was interested in and what it is that I am and what I do. That's ultimately what I landed at. But I didn't know there was no one to mentor me at that time into like this exists, you know, or it can exist or you can make this work for you. And um, American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, you know, gave me an opportunity to do that work. And it became one of the most enriching experiences of my of my life in, in, in many ways. It was difficult. It was hard. I didn't agree with all of it all of the time. But I met tremendous people and scholars and artists and activists. And they poured into me, you know, um, when it would have been easy to walk away because I was kind of an unconventional guy. 
So, you know, Doreen Kondo, who was my advisor and is um, an anthropologist uh, and a scholar and also a writer and an artist in her own right. You know, she's, she's a tough scholar. She's, she's, she's a tough lady. I uh, love her. Um, but, you know, people told me when I was sort of matched up to work with her, like, oh, you ain't ever going to get your PhD out of this one. I mean, they just told me straight out. They're like, <laughs> forget it. She's tough. She's not going to blah, 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 blah. Yes, we you know went back and forth here and there. But ultimately, she respected what I was doing, respected my intellect and my creativity. I had to learn to respect what she had to offer and what the Academy had to offer because I was very skeptical of it. I went into it, but I was also a little skeptical. You know, like, what is all this theory? I was like, I like to keep it on the ground. I keep it real. Like what's going, you know, all of that, you know, (laughs) you know, and uh, ultimately I realized that those two, that's a black and white point of view that wasn't serving me. And ultimately they had a lot to offer me. This image is coming to mind of a river where on the one side you have this creative, what's possible, almost ethereal energy. And the other side is like, practical and structured and results oriented. And it's like the flow that happens between the two banks of the river is this dance you're describing. Do you have a philosophy like, or a quote that you live by? I think I have a couple. One is from Shakespeare to thine own self be true. I remember when I first read that and when I was a teenager and I'm not sure I knew what it meant, but I did write it down and I was like, this is me. I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know? um, but also there are a couple. So there's to that also be true. There's also sort of believing in God and trusting that there is a plan for my life and that when that plan has been fulfilled, my life will then be over on, on this earth, on this plane, you know? and trying to believe and trust in that. And that's easier said than done, you know? Um, But that is basic and sort of foundational to who I am. That has led me to the question at times, if we want to talk about career and purpose, where I ask, I've had enough tough experiences as anyone who's lasted in show business for any period, any real period of time, um, at all. I've had, I've had some very, I've had some beautiful experiences and I've had some tough rock you to your, in the pit of your stomach kind of experiences as well. But one of the questions I've come back to pretty regularly is why do I have a career? You know, there's a lot of narcissism in our, uh, industry, a lot of destructive narcissism, a lot of malignant narcissism. And, you know, it's very tempting to be like, I have a career because I'm the shit. That's why I have a career. You know, <laughs> whatever. Well, one of the things you learn um, when you're blessed to be, quote unquote, deemed good enough to do something as a professional is that you hit a point where a lot of people are talented. You, and if you're being honest with yourself, there are a lot of talented people out there. Not all of them have careers. Some of them have careers that are, quote unquote, bigger, more lucrative than yours. Some don't, and some don't have them at all. And that has nothing to do with whether they're talented or whether they're smart or even whether they're hardworking. Cause that's the other one people will, I just, I grind baby. That's what I do. Have a seat. There are plenty of people who work hard, who are talented, who grind, who don't get the breaks, who don't have the opportunity. So why do you have a career? Why do I get to have a career? 
is a question that asks that that motivates me. I had to come to learn that I do not have a career, me personally, not that I can't do this, so that I can do 10 seasons of NCIS. That's not the purpose of my career. I would love, if you listen in CBS, I would love to have 10 years of NCIS money. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Okay. I got three kids. They got to go to college. You know, woo-woo. I'm not too good for what, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, what is it that I have to say? What is endemic to my voice? Why are the opportunities that I have that seem to come to me? Why is it those opportunities and not other opportunities? And that to me gets back to sort of to thine own self be true. One of the things I struggled with when I was in graduate school is that you have to learn how to speak, you know, what some of us call doctoral ease. You know, it's like a different language. It's a theoretical language. Um, it's a language. It's a language of practicum as well. And da 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 da. And I resisted it at first, not because it was hard, and because it's hard to learn and to learn how to deploy. It is hard, and blah blah blah. But I resisted it because I thought that it was trying to take me away from the ability to be able to talk to the people I love and care about. And I was like, you are not going to remove me so far from my experience and the, especially the great parts of it that my mother looks at me and I'm a stranger. So my litmus test for me was always, can I still talk to my mama? My mama with a sixth grade education from Mississippi who, you know, like, I will learn this language. I will learn this theory. I will use it. I will deploy it. I will do all of that. As long as you tell me that there is some way for me to translate all of that into a conversation at the Thanksgiving table that is about including and not excluding. Okay. Same thing with theater. One of, and my, my wife and I, my wife, um, Anita, who is also now an associate dean at our uh, undergrad institution, one of the things that we talked about drives us nuts. And I take theater to task for this. And I'm glad about the conversations that's happened since the murder of George Floyd um, in the theater space, because uh, it is long overdue and it is and vital. Back in May marked the one-year anniversary since the death of George Floyd. The world was deeply impacted by the video that surfaced his cries out for his mother. We have seen the trial of Derek Chauvin. He's been sentenced and is currently in prison. What else has changed in the world? We went on a social media pause. Conversations were started elsewhere. Introspection calls for listening and educating ourselves. Hashtags were created. Other hashtags were put onto lawn signs. Support for Black-owned businesses increased. We bought books about race and racial justice. Maybe we read some of them. Protests broke out everywhere in the world in solidarity for justice, not just for the families of George Floyd, but for all the families who deserve justice. So what's changed? We've removed some Confederate statues. People became more active politically last fall. Tolerance for inequity and injustice has gone down in the workplace. Art is reflecting these deeper questions being wrestled with in communities of color and intersectionally. I do know that I have the privilege to stop thinking about race. Like, I can take a day off. But Black Americans and people of color do not have that luxury. We probably all have some good intentions. 
I'm making an assumption, but if you are here, I'm including you in that well-intentioned group. But are we paving the road to hell together? You know, the road that's paved with good intentions? What is our responsibility in being better around racial equity and racial justice? The conversations we are having, the stories we are centering, starting in our own lives and homes and workplaces, but then in our art, our media platforms, what we spend our money on, where we spend our time, what we share with others. What is your call to action? I know the world has changed. How are we making it better? I can't stand, I'm gonna be real basic right now. I can't stand motherfuckers who use theater, theater, which at its core is about community coming together as a cudgel to mark themselves as part of the cultural elite. We are separate from, we are not all in this together. It's not a place to come around the- No, it's a place to mark myself as better than. Mm -hmm. And that runs deep, deep in the professional theater. That was perhaps the biggest disappointment for me to get back to an earlier question you asked about what I discovered when I was uh, making my living in professional theater. And I consider myself a theater-based artist still. Love it. Will always love it. But what the profession of it has allowed is for it to be this hoity-toity, I, you know, marker of what is real and what is not, who has real talent, who has, who has the right to participate in this and who doesn't, which is often the way through which theater uh, practices become incredibly racist. For me, it's an, it was an insult to my core because I had come into theater and had been brought into theater as this is this specialized space. And when I say theater now, I'm also talking about artistic practice in general, be it a TV or film. But this is, but in particular theater, this is this space that we can all get together and claim for ourselves and for those that want to do it, anybody who wants to do it, and create connections and openings for people to connect with people. How dare you then as a professional or as an ethos in the theater then take this thing that was literally about people coming together at the end of the day, at the end of the hunt to tell each other stories and turn it into an exclusionary practice? How dare you? Now, sometime around 400,000 years ago, humans learned to fully control fire. This breakthrough radically changed our diets because we could now cook food, but it also transformed our culture as well. A study of evening campfire conversations by the Ju Huan people of Namibia and Botswana suggests that by extending the day, fire allowed people to unleash their imaginations and tell stories rather than merely focus on mundane topics. Stories told by firelight put listeners on the same emotional wavelength, eliciting understanding, trust, and sympathy. The world's first theater originated in ancient Greece. The first plays were performed in the Theater of Dionysus, built in the shadow of the Acropolis in Athens at the beginning of the 5th century. But theaters proved to be so popular they soon spread all over Greece. Drama was classified according to three different types or genres. Comedy, tragedy, and satyr plays. 
Wealthy citizens would sponsor the plays by paying a tax called the Corregia. And just like Pisistratus, the tyrant who established the city Dionysia to enhance his own popularity, many of these wealthy patrons hoped the success of the play they sponsored would provide them with a way into politics. From the mid-5th century BCE, entrance was free. Back then, the role of plays was moral right and wrong, no-win dilemmas. Violence was not permitted on the stage, and the death of a character had to be heard from offstage and not seen. The role of American theater in the 60s and 70s were wrestling with some important societal questions. Whether we're talking about the guerrilla theater of San Francisco, the theater of the oppressed, or the black arts movement. Live theater helps to promote social discourse, dialogue, and potential social change. Theater is a cultural phenomenon that demands that society examines itself in the mirror. Now, there's an idea that theater is for only the ruling elite, with ticket prices costing the same as a month of rent. What role does the theater take on for us now, today? Does that mean that the fire we all gather around are our family dinner tables? That only seats a handful. Perhaps it's movie screens, or our television, or smartphones. But the point of gathering around these spaces are designed for us to wrestle with life's biggest questions. That is something that, you know, I respond very, um, as you can probably hear, very strongly to. So anything for me, and it was a personal journey for me because sometimes I was too absolute in this, but it became a personal journey for me that anytime someone wanted to use, acknowledge the fact that they thought I was bright, acknowledge the fact that they thought I was talented, but then use that as a way to separate me from people, I was not down with it. <laughs> I was not down with that. And I'm still not down with that. You really spoke to your philosophy. And one of the things that I'm hearing in there is there's this confidence and it's also tempered. It's tempered by humility with God's plan, with can I still communicate at the Thanksgiving table with my mom, there's this lid that balances both the fire and also not letting things get separate to the point where you separate yourself and others try to separate you. Yeah, because to do that is to, on some level, say that what you have said about my people behind closed doors is true, and I'm the exception. And it feels good that I've been exceptionalized. But if my being accepted into your space is de facto me saying that what I come from ain't shit, I'm not down with that. Yeah, it's supremacy thinking. It's supremacy thinking, and it sneaks its way into our artistic practice to such a degree that um, some of the most frustrating people you can deal with at times when you're trying to talk about you know, white supremacy or practices that uh, encourage that or that are derived from that. Some of the most frustrating people you can talk to are people in the arts who are convinced of their own liberation all day. Meanwhile, committing acts and practices that do nothing or do more harm than good, I should say. And it's a very tough conversation, but it's one that has to happen. But I did not get into theater because and and creativity and tv so that i could just feel better than other people somehow i'm really getting this sense that the deeper purpose for you is lifting up everyone around you and 
when I look at what you said at the beginning about being blessed and just getting started, there's two tracks. There's personal vision and career moments. Yeah. You're living a dream that you imagined for yourself. This beautiful relationship that you're in, your family, getting paid to do what you love, contributing to the cultural conversation, lifting people up around you, and you're not done yet. You currently hold this position at Queen Sugar. You've been there for multiple years. Why is it such a dream job? How are you seeking to shift the lens through which we see the world? So I've been at Queen Sugar since uh, right after Ava DuVernay created the series. Second season? Uh, no, first season, day one. You came in first season. Day one. <laughs> day one. Day one was there. And um, eventually, you know, was tapped to, you know, run the show as showrunner and head writer and executive producer. And I'm very proud of that time. So it's been six seasons. I chose to move on about a year ago. So uh, as we started our sixth season, I made the decision. First of all, I thought it was the last season. It may not be. <laughs> but either way, I was like, uh, this is last season I'm gonna, or, or in my last season. So that's what I chose to do. And so now I am moving on into my new project, but I've never worked anywhere longer creatively than I have worked at Queen Sugar. I even, I mean, I, I did five years of stop. I did six years and six seasons at Queen Sugar. And for people that may not know, you had written in an entire season five. Yeah. Global pandemic happens. You rewrote season five and then turned right around and wrote season six. Yeah, it was insane. All in one year, all during a pandemic, kids at home. It was crazy. Yeah. And while dealing with the uh, uncertainties of what it meant to shoot in a pandemic, what it meant to write a TV show in a pandemic, dealing with that and dealing with the stresses that come with that, both internally and externally, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. I'm very proud of the work that me and my staff did to pull that off. And as a result, gave that show longer life, frankly. You know, not every show came back that went down after the pandemic struck. Not every show came back and made it on the air, much less made it on the air with new, more vital material and continue to keep going. So I'm very proud of the work that I did as three and a half years showrunner of that show. And I don't know how long it's going to run, um, whether it's going to run another season or, or multiple seasons after that. But I'm proud of the work that I did very much so and that my staff did. And one of the reasons I think that the work that I did on that show was impactful to its audience was because of some of the things that I'm talking about. Because I refuse, I would do my best to create those stories and write them through a lens of love and respect as well as challenge the audience, as opposed to I'm going to look down my nose and tell you what's good for you sort of thing. Because the characters on that show are, are my mother, were my mother. My mother passed a few years ago. And so I always wrote that show as a kind of tribute to her and to people like her. And that was able to fuse with uh, the original vision of Ava DuVernay, and together then we ended up doing really, really wonderful work. This is a show that when my mother passed, I was working on, and literally I'm in her hospice care room 
you know, holding her hand with my left hand and rewriting scripts with my right hand. And there were days where I was kind of upset that I did that because of like, you can't get that time back. And then the other point of view is that he was so deeply in love with what I, what I was getting to do on that show. And I was so much writing it from a place of, of love and tribute that at least I'm very happy that when she left this earth, she saw her son, her baby boy doing something that was validating her experience. And she had not necessarily been validated in her life through love and relationships and, and through a world which said that she had less value because she was a single mother with all these kids and blah, 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 blah. And so every time I walk into a room now, um, whether it's a writer's room, whether it's a, a meeting with producers, whether it is uh, pitching or selling a show to, you know, big muckety mucks at the networks and studios, all those people in those experiences, they are with me. And so I'm able to walk into that room with a certain sense of confidence and like, this is what it is that I want to do. Do you want to be a part of it? Do you not? If not, that's cool. I'll go over here, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not apologizing for who I am, where I come from, and what I represent and what I want to represent. I've heard you say that one of the things that your mom imbued in you is that you belong in any room you go into. And I can't think of anything more beautiful to your relationship and her legacy of writing yourself and for her as a parallel to the stories that you're telling on that show and I'm sure whatever else you're showing, you're, you're creating. What are we doing well as an industry? When I think about the Bechtel test, I think about you know the basic measures of see if women are fairly represented in a film and how Gina Davis created her inclusion quotient. And I think about the Shonda effect in casting and I think about the Ava rule with regards to directing on Queen Sugar. The Bechdel test has three basic requirements for a movie. It has to have at least two women in it. They have to talk to each other and they have to discuss something besides a man. Gina Davis wants to raise awareness about gender bias in media. So the Gina Davis Inclusion Quotient, or GDIQ, measures equal representation in film, television, advertising, publishing, and the media. Ava DuVernay hired only women to direct the 13 episodes of Owen's critically acclaimed first season. She wasn't the first to do this. The first season of Amazon's Transparent was the first TV series to be directed entirely by women. Creator Jill Soloway helmed seven of the 10 episodes and Nisha Ganatra handled the other three. Other series have been directed entirely by one female director. Ava DuVernay is the first series creator and showrunner to hire seven women of various backgrounds, five of whom had never directed episodic television. When Ava DuVernay set out to make Queen Sugar, the director of the Oscar-nominated Selma and Netflix documentary 13th realized she wouldn't have time to direct the entire show herself. She says it wasn't let's all find women. The names that popped up in her head were filmmakers she'd known and admired through the independent film festival circuit and other Hollywood circles. When DuVernay told executive producer Oprah Winfrey what she was thinking, Winfrey replied, yes, 
Let's do this. Two things. One, can you tell a brief story about Ava with regards to female directors? And what's the Sparks quotient? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, in terms of kudos to the uh, initiative and and to Ava deciding to use Queen Sugar as a platform for discovering and giving opportunities to women directors. It is a little stunning that it took a small show on, you know, small in terms of, you know, when I say small, I mean in terms of not being on, you know, ABC, NBC, you know, one of the traditional broadcast networks. Um, but... Uh, a show with a big heart on a smaller network, um, a new network, to kick that conversation off. I think it's always to be, I think Ava is to always be applauded for that and for maintaining that uh, initiative. It's sort of stunning that it hadn't happened before. And I think that we should never go back to an era where people would literally look at their director's list. And if you had 22 episodes, you had 22 white male directors. Like, what? <laughs> like, really? We, we, like, we can't do that. Uh, and so me figuring out and being part of figuring out how to write a show at the quality of Queen Sugar that allow to... Uh, for those directors to be come in and be set up for success is something that I am uh, proud to have been a part of as a writer, producer, and showrunner. The Sparks Quotient. It's funny. I just turned in, <laughs> I just turned in a script in my new show to Disney yesterday, and I was talking with my producing partners. They had given me some really tough notes uh, in one of the earlier passes of it, uh, and uh, and their notes actually weren't wrong. But I, got, I was a little prickly about it. And the reason I was a little prickly about it was because I'm thinking of other things that they are not thinking about. So, for example, at the center of the show that I'm creating for Disney called Choir, Disney Plus, is this platonic relationship between a young man, 29, 30 years old currently, a black man, and a uh, black, a young lady who's 16 or 17 years old. That's the core of the series. It is a challenging relationship, but it is a healthy one that is grounded in some serious, serious love, okay? At one point, I resisted doing some things with that lead black male character that I ultimately should do because it works better dramatically. But I resisted it for a while. It took me a while to come around to it. And the reason is, is because the images of black men and their ability to be vulnerable and their ability to love both each other and their family and their communities and those around them has just been so lacking traditionally in television. So one of the things, and you see this in this last season, my last season on Queen Sugar, if you're watching the sixth season, you're seeing basically a season about Black men loving each other or trying to love each other in a variety of different ways. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in Hollywood, and you see it in his ability to be expansive towards this little boy that um, he has discovered, and it bringing up the question um, of children, um, and, and what does his legacy look like without children? 
Um, you see it in the Micah storyline where, you know, probably by the time this podcast airs, your audience will see more of where we're headed with that, where it becomes a question of how close can you be with another male, another black male in this case, and have it be seen as healthy by society or not have it be not having it seen through this sort of suspicious lens of what's wrong, you know, blah, 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 or have it be sexualized in some sort of way. And having the character, as a character does this season, ask questions about who they are and come out with, on the other side of it, with an answer or not with an answer and have whatever the ambiguity of that answer be okay. Like, that storyline is absolutely, I, I think, certainly in terms of Black television, is probably a little groundbreaking where we end up with that storyline. I'm very proud of that. So this theme of, of Black men being able to be fully human in their vulnerability and in their ability to love, I think is probably a recurring theme for me and so if there's an anthony sparks quotient i don't think that's all of it i think there's some other things that are also recurring things for me which we can talk about if you want but that is one of them and so i said to my producing partners on this new show at disney i said i think we have an opportunity here um in success we get this thing on the air where you've not seen a relationship like a platonic love relationship between a black man and a younger black woman that is clearly and completely about that. Why is that important? I'm going to tell you something a little disgusting right now. When my daughter turned 12 and 13 and started going through the emotional peaks and valleys that 12, 13, and 14-year-old girls often go through, and that 12 and 13-year-old Black girls who go to school in largely white environments and some of the things that they're dealing with that they go through, I, as I do, you know, I'm a reader, I'm an information seeker, I'm curious about the world. I was like, oh, I need somebody help me, you know, because I want to be able to support my daughter and da, 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 da. And so I went to the internet one day and I Googled black father and black daughter. Why did I do that? I don't know if it's still the same. You could do it now and probably get the same thing. I think Google has finally sort of started because of books like oppression, uh, algorithms of oppression and things like that have started to kind of suppress some of these um, very negative, very uh, uh, pejorative sort of search results. But basically I got a page full of porn by simply entering the terms black father, black daughter, thinking I'm going to get search results. Relationship advice. About relationships and about how you did it and like whatever you would get if you did, you know, just father, daughter relationships. No, I got, the most disgusting pages of porn as the first results that pop up. And I said, oh, well, I knew society thought X, Y, Z about us, but damn, I, whoa, are you really? So that has an impact on you. If you're a creative person, an artist, a husband and a father who loves his daughter, and that that is the quality of images that are out there. And I intend, as God is my witness, as long as I get to have a career, I will be pushing against that type of um, decrepit thinking in the stories that I tell. 
They will be entertaining stories. They will be dramatic. They will be challenging stories. But they will be stories that take on the fullness of who men are, specifically Black men, who women are, specifically Black women. There will be an, an element of edification in anything that I do. And it will be shot through and created through a lens of love. And love can be tough love, but it's love. I love that answer. I'm hearing a fullness, a richness, a complexness, and that really there's a provocative nature that doesn't necessarily provide all the answers, but stirs up uh, an expanded thinking for us to wrestle with. I think that's beautiful. And I can't wait to see where these stories lead. Can we have fun for a few minutes? Sure. So you're from Chicago. Let's start with a controversial question. Who, this is, <laughs> this is more of a lightning round. So first thought that comes to mind, who makes the best deep dish pizza? I'm going to say something that I'm not supposed to say as a Chicago person. I'm not a fan of deep dish pizza. Okay. Do you prefer Detroit? <laughs> Do you prefer New York? What's your... Oh, no. I'm a fan of Chicago pizza. Okay. Don't get it twisted. Okay. 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 I'm a card-carrying <laughs> member of Southside Chicago. I'm just saying my dirty little secret is I love our thin crust than our deep dish. Awesome. Who makes the best one? I'm the best? I can't say the best. I do like home run and pizza. I do like uh, Eduardo's. And then I have a soft spot in my heart for Giordano's because we just went there so much after we would do school plays and stuff like that. That was our spot. And so, like, I don't know if it's the best, but it makes me feel the best. I love it. Now I've got a short list I can go check out. Chicago-style pizza usually refers to deep dish pizza, which is a thick pizza baked in a pan and layered with cheese, fillings like meat and vegetables, and sauce in that order. The crust is usually two to three inches tall and gets slightly fried due to the oil in the pan. According to Tim Samuelson, Chicago's official cultural historian, there's not enough documentation to determine with certainty who invented Chicago-style deep dish pizza. Some say it was invented by one of Pizzeria Uno's founders, Ike Sewell, but others contend it was created by pizza chef Rudy Malnati and or cook Alice May Redmond. Stuffed pizza came along in 1974 when Nancy's and Giordano's both opened their doors. They claim that their recipes came from old family recipes from Italy of scarcetta or Easter pies. Chicago thin crust pizza features cracker thin crust that's usually square cut and often loaded with fennel heavy sausage. Unlike New York style pizza, Chicago's thin crust is crispy and cannot be folded. This is because dough is rolled, not tossed, and cooked much longer to ensure that crunch. A survey in 2013 indicated that while the most popular pizza topping in the rest of the US is pepperoni, in Chicago the most popular topping is Italian sausage. In addition to standard toppings, many local pizzerias also offer Chicago-specific topping options, such as Italian beef and jardinera. All right, Anthony, first thing that comes to mind, clapping on the one and the three. Don't, don't you let your friends clap on the one and the three. <laughs> Why is that? That's not a friend. That's not a friend. <laughs> For good friends, don't let friends clap on the one and the three. True, true. Okay. 
Whitney M. Young Magnet School. Changed my life. Mm-hmm. For the better. Love that place. That's my alma mater. I went there from 7th through 12th grade. Here's what I love about, and Whitney Young is a little bit different now. It's still an excellent, fantastic, amazing school, probably even better than when I went there. But what has changed uh, is this. And so I'm grateful that I went there when I did. Whitney Young uh, is considered the best, certainly one of the best schools, almost inarguable public schools in Chicago. Mm -hmm. When I was there, Whitney Young was 50% Black, and it was the best school around. That has made an indelible impact on me because what it did for me was I did not locate the notion of being the best outside of myself, outside of people who look like me. And I didn't really realize this until I like got to undergrad. And then even after undergrad, I was, you know, why am I able to do this or blah, 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 or why do I not seem to be struggling with this issue that this other person is struggling with? And it was because I was in an environment that where excellence looked at least half of the people look like me. It's a gift that I cannot even, I can't even recreate it for my own kids. I'm trying to support them and offer them other things that are just, that are valuable. So that school at that time for me was amazingly impactful. Yeah. Some other incredibly notable people have gone and come through that school yeah, that make it a little bit hard for the rest of us <laughs> to feel like we've achieved some things when Michelle Obama graduated from your high school. Sure, <laughs> but it's a school also that you graduated cum laude from. Anthony, what does the term blurred mean to you? I love that term. I'm so glad that it sort of entered the slang lexicon in these last 10 years. So blurred for most people means black nerd. Now, and it's a term that I embrace proudly. And you can testify to this, Joe, because... Who was the lead character in my first play in New York, Ghetto Punch? Horatio, the black nerd, yes, right? Yes, okay, sir. we have the term blurt. Now, I actually don't, I think I'm pretty fucking cool. I actually don't think I'm a nerd in the traditional sense. But I, I am in the sense, and the reason I have always embraced that in the creative space being a nerd is because there was no room for black nerds when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. White people get to be all sorts of things, you know? And then it was like, for us, it was not so much. And so I love, it's it's me subtly also being a little, you know, trying to be a little progressive because if you are a Black nerd, what you're saying is that you lead with intellect and you lead with creativity. And that, and our world does not really assign that to Black men. It's sports, sex, or, you know, deviance, you know, of some kind. And so... For me to be able to nerd out on history or comic books, if that's what you're nerding out on, or whatever it is, I love it. So, yeah. So, as the father of twin black boys, what does the term black boy joy spark in you? Why I do what I do to create the space for possibility of black boy joy and black girl magic. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. The show that I've just created for Disney Plus in many ways is underneath it all. It's a lot of singing and dancing. It's a lot of cool stuff, you know, and stories that I'm excited to tell. But at the end of the day, the thrust of the story is about 
black kids being able to claim a space for childhood. That's what the show is really about. And that sounds like, well, of course, but uh-uh. <laughs> you know, there's a whole body of literature from scholars and activists and educators that talks about the uh, ways in which black children are robbed of their childhood. So if I'm posting something online and I'm hashtagging black boy joy with my sons or my daughter, it's just having fun, just posting, but it is also me going, I'm going to do my best as a parent, as a dad to make sure that they have that. You only get to be a child and young once. And the fact that I am the son of a single mother from Mississippi who became a mother at age 14 with no education, that the idea that I could turn around, be her son, do the things I've done in order to create that 12, you know, hopefully 18 year period where my kids get to be kids. Like I won, like you couldn't give me an award. You couldn't give me any kudo that to me exceeds the idea that my black children have had, have had a childhood in which they know joy. That's how I roll, man. I love it. I'm so moved by what you just said. And I want to read something to you. It's a quote you may recognize. It goes like this. Write, if you will, but write about the world as it is and as you think it ought to be and must be if there is to be a world. Write about all the things that men have written about since the beginning of writing and talking, but write to a point. Work hard at it. Care about it. Write about our people. Tell their story. You have something glorious to draw up begging for attention. Don't pass it up. Don't pass it up. Use it. Good luck to you. The nation needs your gifts. Wow. Who said that? So one of the first gifts you gave me was to be young, gifted, and black. And that speech is Lorraine Hansberry's speech given to Reader's Digest in 1964. And I'm, I'm just curious to know, first thing that comes to mind when you think about that, because it's the through line to everything that you've been describing in this conversation. Well, you've reminded me where I then sort of, in my own sort of paraphrasing, got that from the great, great Lorraine Hansberry, my God. So to sort of answering a question I answered before, but I will re-answer is, so what is, you know, an Anthony Sparks quotient uh, in my work is, is that I write about the world as I find it and I write about the world as I wish it to be. And I do that unapologetically. I ain't got no problem doing that. I think that might be the answer to my next question. I got two more and then I want to let you go, which is, what is something that you do better than most people? <laughs> I know um, it's challenging because I'm asking you to go there. Embrace. I think I embrace people mm -hmm. pretty well, better than, than most people, like where they are when I meet them. I think I, I think I do that pretty well. It's something I'm at least conscious of working on a lot. You probably mean that emotionally, intellectually, but I also think you give 
arguably world's greatest hugs. So you'd be embraced <laughs> by Anthony Sparks. <laughs> oh, thank He's you. on all levels. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank I think you. I stepped thank on you. You had one more thought towards the end of there, and I want to make sure that you capture it. No, I, I think I'm specifically talking, as you can hear, about a quality of personhood versus a skill set or something. You know, so A, it would be relationships matter to you. Yeah, yeah. A would be incredibly arrogant of anyone <laughs> like, wow, well, I write better than anybody. I'm a clown. I swear you say that I don't. It's like, right. well, have a seat. You can't say that. But um, yeah, I'm 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 interested in in people and relationships. And if those are people that I can make something awesome with, or we can help each other and support each other in our creativity, of course that's great. But at the end of the day, it's connection. It's it's people. It's human. Like to me, like like making a TV show to me is almost just an excuse to get a bunch of kind of weirdos together and see what happens. (laughs) 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 On the flip side of that question, what's something that you're working to get better at? I am challenged in certain areas of fatherhood because it's challenging, number one, um, and parenthood, but also because I haven't really seen it done. I'm a pioneer in my own life in that space, up close. I have plenty of love, lots of brothers, lots of father figures and uncles or whatever. But I, but so there are times where I am learning the power of my voice and that a whisper is better than a shout because I, I sometimes don't know the own power of my voice. And then sometimes, you know, my children's faces or emotions will show me, oh, you know, take it down 50%, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. I would extend that also to being a husband, that I'm just constantly working on being a, I, I, I do believe that I am a good husband and father, but I believe that I am constantly being challenged to be better in those areas and that, being the best that I can be uh, in those areas is probably the greatest thing that I could ever do. There's no such thing as perfection, obviously, but um, I'm doing my best or want to do my best so that my kids and my community, not just necessarily those that I fathered, but whatever communities I touch. So when I say my best to be part of their rocket fuel that allows them to go out into the world and pursue their best life, whatever that means to them and that they feel that they have been set up to be able to do that and do that with as much freedom as this world allows or as much freedom as their mind and spirit can imagine that this world allows. That's so moving to me. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of that answer and who you are. And okay, on the horizon, things we should be looking out for. Yeah. Season six of Queen Sugar is out now. By the time this airs, there still will be a few we can follow along with. That's right. So please, because where we, I, where we got to take this season, where I leave the show in terms of its the stories that we've explored this season and the stories that I've set up for potential future seasons, I'm very proud of. 
Uh, I don't think it's been really done that much in television before. And, you know, and sort of the, the, the question I basically end the season on without giving away too much is just how large can this notion of black joy be? How deep can it go? And what does it really look like if you say, that's what I'm going to live on top of? I literally got to grapple with those questions in this season. And so I'm very proud of that. That's Queen Sugar season six. I hope they'll engage with you on Twitter because people can join in the conversation there. You're very active there. I know you signed an overall deal at Blumhouse and you have Detroit Youth Choir on Disney+. Plus. Yes, yes. So we have that. Um, Hulu so, show. Uh, my, yeah, so this is really a tremendous moment because so right now I have my swan song season of Queen Sugar of several years running the show. It's my swan song season as I transition into my deal at Blumhouse uh, Television. And we've sold a show together to Disney Plus uh, that is right now called Choir. And I'm very excited about what that can be. So stay tuned and listen for that. I'm also an executive producer on uh, a Hulu limited series that is going to be coming out probably in the next six months. We are shooting now. It is the untitled Mike Tyson series taking on his life, which is a big life to take on, very unique life. So I'm very, very proud of that. That's going to be pretty special. Um, Trevante Rhodes is playing Mike Tyson, Russell Hornsby is playing Don King, Harvey Keitel is playing Cus D'Amato, who was uh, Mike Tyson's uh, trainer and adoptive father. Uh, uh, Laura Harrier is playing uh, Robin. You know, it's just, it's, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Craig Gillespie uh, and Stephen Rogers, uh, uh, who did I, Tanya, it's going to be something to see. It's going to be really something to see. Uh, so I got that. So I got Queen Sugar. I got Choir. I got Untitled Mike Tyson happening. I've got um, about two or three other projects that are um, being fast-tracked. I'm busy and, and uh, I'm, I'm sometimes tired, but I am also remember being very like, yeah, remember when you wanted to be this busy? You know, I worked so hard for other people and my past and recent past that I did get to a point where I was like, if I can work this hard for other people, how hard could I work for my own visions and my own, my own projects as well? And, and the time was now for me to step out and do that. And that's what I'm doing. A couple of things I can't announce just yet, but, um, but a couple other, a couple other deals that I've uh, been blessed to sign that I'm, I'm working on that you'll be hearing about, I think in the next few months. Well, you know, I'll be cheering you on whenever you're allowed to announce them and we'll certainly share as much as we can. And I want to say thank you for your time. I know how valuable it is. I want to thank you for what you're doing to write a new world and the possibilities of that new world into existence. And I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom in all the spaces that you show up to teach and encourage I want to thank you for being a beacon of what is possible in the world personally to me and professionally. And thank you for your many years of friendship and wisdom and 
your great big heart. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I love you, man. I appreciate you. This is a thanks for having me on. And hopefully, you know, people find this interesting or helpful. What stands out to me is Anthony's passion and vision. He is so clear on what he wants to see in the world, and his vision is backed up by his drive. I loved hearing about his why, and to see that he saw this vision years before it has come into existence, that he was ridiculed and questioned at times by his peers, and and now that sweet celebration of so many things coming to fruition at once. It's awesome to see the through line that Shakespeare has had in Anthony's life as a storyteller. From him exploring Shakespeare in high school, to performing Shakespeare in college, to getting work on a production at the public theater, and that his philosophy is partly rooted in To Thine Own Self Be True. I hope you will check out Queen Sugar. The sixth season has been compelling, but to be honest, they have been making such great television for years now. It is entertainment and a masterclass, but it's also an education. So if you haven't seen the show, check it out. And follow Anthony on social media, like on Twitter. You'll get a glimpse into what he's up to and can engage with him over there as well. Lastly, I feel inspired to tell better stories, to write better into existence, to celebrate when good stories are being dreamed up and created, and get curious about what we can learn about why they are having such an impact in the world. Okay, you are not going to want to miss our next guest, Liza Katzer. Liza is a creative producer and executive for Doozer Productions, where she spent 10 years working alongside Bill Lawrence and Jeff Ingold. She most recently won an Emmy Award for a little show called Ted Lasso. Originally from Southern California, Liza studied at Northwestern University, spending time abroad in Edinburgh, Scotland, before returning to Los Angeles to begin her journey towards becoming a creative producer. She spent time learning about how the industry works for both Management 360 and the United Talent Agency, UTA, before landing at Disney. She spent several years helping put together films at Disney before finally making the leap over into producing comedy for network TV, cable, and streamers. There is a reason why The Hollywood Reporter just named Liza as one of the top 35 executives under 35 in Hollywood. In addition to season three of Ted Lasso, she has upcoming shows in development with Vince Vaughn, Jason Siegel, and more. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you in our next episode of The Better Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You continue to show up for these episodes, and we are so grateful. We appreciate you resharing them, for letting us know what is impacting you, and for your enthusiasm. We're excited. We're in the second half of the season. We have some great guests on the horizon, and we hope that you will continue to enjoy. Thank you for being part of this community. Until next week, be well. Be well.